The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 10.45 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at capitalcommunitychurch.com. We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, please take your Bible uh, this evening and turn with me to Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, chapter 1. While it would be quite natural for me to uh, perhaps take a text or a passage of Scripture and walk through that text uh, for our purposes this evening, I want you to see the, the full sweep of God's Word as we look together at the relationship that Christ has with His church. In other words, um, sometimes we need to see, and I think it's quite helpful for us, uh, to see a bird's eye view of God's redemptive plan and purposes. And that's what um, we see when we behold the bride uh, with Christ. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 15. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Now, this phrase, beautiful, in Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 15, is not a word that we often associate with the church. In an age when so many of the church's failures and missteps and sins are posted for public, public exhibition, it's easy to allow our warmth toward the church to grow quite cold and apathetic. Through a scrutinizing lens, many scowl at the church, viewing the church with great suspicion and doubt and sheer amazement that anyone would want to be part of such a dysfunctional family. It's quite sad that most of our successes are very private but our sins are very, very public. Sometimes the church can seem anything but beautiful. But let me ask you the question this evening during our time together that I want to help answer for you. Does Jesus look at the church with the same scowl? Does Jesus look at the church with the same disdain and disappointment? Let me introduce you this evening to an 18th century English Baptist pastor by the name of John Gill. John Gill who helps us answer this question by drawing our attention away from the introspection to the words of the bridegroom in Song of Solomon chapter 1, verse 15. You are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Interpreting Song of Solomon as an intense allegorical portrayal of an exchange between Christ and His bride, the church, John Gill writes these words. These are the words of Christ, commending the beauty of the church, expressing His great affection for her, of her fairness and beauty. And so you see, friends, Jesus sees His bride 
through the lens of love, not disdain. Jesus sees his bride, the church, through a lens of beauty, not disgust. Now let me ask another question. How can beautiful be the adjective that Jesus uses to define the church? After all, she's composed of sinners, right? Albeit forgiven, still sinners. The church is plagued by division. The church is besieged by scandal and often to appear as if the church has lost its first love. Even the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 27 reminds us that it's only at the end of the age that the church will be found without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And so what does Jesus see in his bride that would cause him to exclaim, you are beautiful? What in the church does Jesus see in his bride that would cause him to call her my love? Well, I want to give you three things this evening, and have your Bibles handy because we're going to be turning to various texts as I unfold this argument for you of Jesus seeing and beholding His church as beautiful. Number one, number one, what does Jesus see? Well, He sees the beauty of His Father. He sees the beauty of His Father. It's necessary here to clarify at the very start that the beauty of the church is not a type of romantic or inherently attractive beauty that causes one to blush. There's nothing within the church that would draw us to her. The beauty of the church is a reflection of another. God the Father. Turn over to Psalm 27. Just turn backwards uh, to Psalm 27, verse 4. Psalm 27, verse 4. David's words here. He says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Do you hear David's words here? It's as if he is scrutinizing every facet of a brilliantly cut diamond and he confesses that he could spend all the days of his life gazing intently upon the beauty of the Lord. Asaph joins David in his admiration of God's perfect beauty in Psalm 50, verse 2. You don't have to turn there necessarily, but you can jot that down. Psalm 50, verse 2 Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 28, verse 5, a day when the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory. Isaiah is foretelling of this day coming. There will be a day when the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to his people. Friends, to come face to face with God's transcendent beauty is to ascend to the peak of our deepest longing and is the fulfillment of our greatest desire. 
God's beauty shines forth most radiantly, and we touched on that this morning, most radiantly through the biblical concept of glory. Moses experienced this glory in Exodus 33 when God's glory passed by him. In 2 Chronicles chapter 5, when God's glory engulfed the temple, the priests were unable to perform their service of worship. In Isaiah 6, a very familiar text, Isaiah found himself face down in the dirt when he came face to face with God's glory emanating from his eternal throne. This morning, those of you who joined us in our morning worship, Peter, James, and John became like dead men as God's glory sparkled in their eyes when Christ was transfigured before them. Now, in our fallen state, to behold God's refulgent glory would cause us to fall dead in wonder, love, and praise. Now, I'm going to introduce you to another man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. And I would dare say, I would hope, that Edwards is no foreign entity uh, or foreign individual in this pulpit. Edwards reflects on God's glory and beauty. Listen to Edwards' words. For as God is infinitely the greatest being, so He is allowed to be infinitely the most beautiful and the most excellent. And all the beauty to be found throughout the whole creation is, a, is but the reflection of the diffused beams of that being who has an infinite fullness of brightness and glory. God is the foundation and fountain of all being and all beauty. You see, friends, like a prism that splits light into a myriad of colors, everything in God's creation is a mere reflection of the one radiant beam of glory emanating from God's inerrant holiness and perfection. Edwards regarded the beauty of God as the differentiating feature of God Himself. Edwards says, God is God. I like that, don't you? God is God and is distinguished from all other beings and exalted above them chiefly by His divine beauty which is infinitely diverse from all other beauty. You see, God's beauty emanates directly from His being because it is who He is. He is the fountain and foundation of all beauty. All other creatures receive their beauty from, from the outside and from outside sources, but God isn't dependent, as it were, upon other things or other persons to make Him beautiful because He is the foundation and fountain of all beauty. Now, the supreme expression of God's beauty is His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who Himself, Scripture says, is the image and radiance of His Father. Paul affirms this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul affirms Jesus as the image of God. That is, 
To see Jesus is to see God. To hear Jesus is to hear God. To know Jesus is to know God. Again, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul clarifies Jesus as the image of the invisible God. The writer of Hebrews echoes this same glorious language in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And so as glory is a defining characteristic of God's nature, the beauty that shines forth from God also shines forth from Jesus, for Jesus is the visible incarnation of God's radiant glory. Edwards identifies Christ as the end for which God created the world. And you thought it was you. No, Jesus is the end for which God created the world and how God most vividly expresses His beautiful love to sinful creatures, you and me. And the expression of love between the Father and the Son is the selecting of a bride for Christ. That she too might beam with that same beauty as her bridegroom. Edwards says this, Christ is divine wisdom so that the world is made to gratify divine love as exercised by Christ or to gratify the love that is in Christ's heart or to provide a spouse for Christ. Those creatures which wisdom chooses for the object of divine love as Christ's elect spouse. So do you hear what Edwards is saying here? To express His infinite love for His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, God gives Jesus a spouse, the church. You and me. We, as the church, are a love gift from the Father to the Son. Now that should excite even a Baptist. In a sermon on Revelation 22, preached in May 1741, Edwards continues this meditation. Listen to these words. Christ obtaining this spouse is the great end of all the great things that have been done from the beginning of the world. It was that the Son of God might obtain His chosen spouse that the world was created. And that He came into the world. And when this end shall fully be obtained, the world will come to an end. Do you hear what's being said there? The church is a gift from God to His Son, quote, so that the mutual joys between the bride and bridegroom are the end of creation. Therefore, as the Son is a reflection of His Father, the church, as His eternal bride, is a reflection of the Son. So when Christ lovingly looks upon His church, the bride, and exclaims, You are beautiful, my love, 
Behold, you are beautiful. He is beholding the reflection of the everlasting glory and infinite love of His Father who is the primary fountain of all divine beauty. When Christ looks at the church, He sees the beauty of His Father. And if you'll allow me to put it like this, since Christ's ascension to the right hand of the majesty on high, there is now no other brilliant exemplification of God's perfect beauty in this world than His church. Than His church. Have you ever thought of yourself that way? That Capital Community Church in Raleigh is the beautiful expression of the everlasting beauty that radiates from the throne and through the sun to us. And as you're at work on Tuesday when you go back to work, as you're standing in the line at the grocery store, as you're walking the halls of your school, or you're at home studying, or you're having a meal with your family around the table, or you're at the restaurant, or you're shopping at the mall, you, as the church, are the beaming exemplification and representation of God the Father's beauty through Christ to you. And you are reflecting the beauty of the Father in such a way that Christ looks at you and says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Well, secondly, and I could go on and on with that one reason, that one definition of Christ seeing the beauty of His Father in the church. When Christ looks at His church, secondly, He sees the sufficiency of His love. He sees the sufficiency of His love. As believers, we never move past the love of Christ. We never tire of the love of Christ. A true believer is one who never gets over the profound words of the childhood song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. All of our redemption and salvation flows freely from this never-ending fountain of divine love. And such endless, boundless love can only be rightly understood when we visit a bloody cross and an empty tomb. Everything we have as the church, everything we are as the church, everything we could ever hope to be as the church, everything Capital Community Church you will ever hope to be, everything is wrapped up in the free, eternal, infinite love of Christ. This infinite love is comprehensive and causes the bridegroom to rescue his bride from the depths of sin and depravity by taking his lover's place at the bar of holy judgment and before the wrath of God. Listen, folks, greater than spinning the worlds into existence is this selfless act of sacrifice that makes Jesus both a savior of the church and the head of the church. 
Turn over with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, Christ is the head of the church, His body, and is Himself its Savior. When you come to the opening chapters of the New Testament, just so we don't miss His divinity, God repeatedly reminds us that His incarnate Son is a Savior. This is why He came. This is why He was born. This is why He was sent. At the very beginning of Mary's Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, verse 47, she worshipfully cries, My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The angel who appears to Joseph triumphantly announcing that Jesus will be the one, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, to save his people from their sins. In Luke chapter 2, the angels announced to the shepherds in the fields, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now the Greek word translated Savior means one who preserves or rescues from natural dangers and afflictions. And it carries with it this idea of deliverance from harm in order to preserve. You see, a Savior is both a rescuer and a protector. In his prophecy of the Messiah, Zechariah affirms that this anointed one will deliver us, Luke chapter 1, verse 74, from the hand of our enemies. He's a rescuer and he's a protector. Well, who are our enemies and why do we need rescuing? We need rescuing from our sin. We need rescuing from God's wrath upon our sin and death, which is the consequence of our sin. Isaiah says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden His face from you. You see, God is so holy that He cannot look upon sin. He cannot approve of sin. He cannot accept sinful creatures into His presence. Paul clearly defines this, the consequences of sin. Turn over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Turn over a couple pages to Romans 7, 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he answers his question in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. He says, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the parable of a, of a shepherd who leaves his flock to search for one lost sheep. And Jesus is the shepherd who rescues his bride from the sinful shackles of death. Jesus is the one who delivers his bride from God's holy wrath upon sin. He is our Savior. And the point of all of this that I'm coming to is simply this. The stage upon which this glorious rescuing work is accomplished is his cross and his tomb. And the bride, the church, identifies with the cross and the tomb because they are our cross and tomb as well. 
Jesus doesn't excuse our sin. Jesus doesn't just tell us to, to, you know, just never mind its consequences. Christ and his bride are so intimately identified that they become united with one another in death and resurrection and sinners come to the cross of Christ and receive by faith the wages of their sin, death. We don't die physically, but we die a required death through Christ, for He becomes our substitute and stands in our stead, taking upon Himself the wrath of His Father. And what God requires of us because of our sin is paid for us in full by our beloved the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when Christ looks at the church, He sees the cross where He purchased us with His own blood. And He rescued us. And He forgave us. And He delivers us from the wrath to come. Friends, the cross, the cross with all of its blood flowing, with all of its lacerated flesh and the the stench of death becomes the epicenter of cleansing for sinners. And when Christ lovingly looks upon His darling bride, He declares at the cross, My love, you are beautiful. Why? Because it's at the cross that we are made beautiful. It's at the cross that we are washed as white as snow. It's at the cross that we enter into union with Christ so that our sin becomes His And His righteousness becomes ours. It's at the cross and because of the cross that Jesus can now usher us into the presence of His Father and say, Father, look, look at my bride who You gave me and whom I have purchased with my own blood. And it's at the tomb three days later with all of its miraculous power and folded grave clothes and heavenly promises it becomes the same power by which dead sinners emerge from their sin having been raised to new life in Christ. You see, friends, when Jesus died on the cross, we died on the cross. When Jesus rose from the dead, we rose from the dead. And this beautiful union is so fixed and so permanent that we are now taken into the eternal love that exists between the Father and and the Son through the Spirit. And the same love that flows unceasingly between the Father and the Son now directly flows to His bride. And He says from the cross, and He says from the tomb, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are are beautiful because I have made you beautiful. Let me remind you of Paul's words in Ephesians 5.23. Christ is the head of the church, His body, and is Himself its Savior. The phrase head of the church is not employed to identify Christ as the head of a company or the head of an organization. This is not a business. Your pastor is not your CEO. 
This is not a business. In Ephesians 5.23, Paul distinguishes Christ as the head of the church. And here's the portion we leave off. And would you underline it and circle it and draw an arrow to it and highlight it? His body. The church isn't the result of some human ingenuity. No, the living Christ is the head of a living organism. This emblematic language is used all throughout Paul's epistles. Let me give you a few verses. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. Ephesians 1, 22-23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. Colossians 1, 18, He is the head of the body, the church. Colossians 2, 19, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So you see, friends, identifying Christ as the head of the church denotes that he has sovereign lordship and supreme authority over her. As he told his disciples, as he commissioned them in Matthew chapter 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now that means that the church receives all of its life from Christ and has no life apart from Christ. They are one. As one cannot live without oxygen The church cannot exist for one moment with Christ, our life. Christ is the church's ventilator, constantly filling her lungs with this life-giving spiritual breath animating her, gifting her, empowering her through His Spirit. And this means that we who serve in the church serve her only as Christ empowers and enables us to do so. This power is not of us. It means that Christ imparted to the church and will continue to impart to her His very life. Charles Spurgeon delivered a sermon on November the 1st, 1868, asking the question, what is the church? Now his answer materializes out of this glorious reality of Christ as the church's head. Listen to what he says. What is the church? The word signifies an assembly. The church of Jesus Christ is an assembly of the faithful, the whole company of God's chosen and called out ones, the entire community of true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wherever true believers are, there is a part of the church. Wherever such men are not, whatever organization may be in existence, that is no church of Jesus Christ. The church is no cooperation of priests or confederacy of unconverted men. It is the assembly of those whose names are written in heaven. An assembly of the faithful is a church which Jesus Christ has redeemed with his most precious blood and of which he is the soul and head. Part of that church is in heaven, triumphant. Part on earth, militant. But these differences of place, 
Make no division concerning real unity. There is only one church above and below. Time creates no separation. The church is always one. One church of the apostles, one church of the reformers, one church of the first century, one church of the latter days, and of this one and only church, Jesus Christ is the one and only head. And so you see within Spurgeon's definition of the church is this underlining reality that Christ is her life and her head and cannot do anything without Him. The church is intimately united to Christ as her Savior and as her head. And beloved, this glorious theme is going to be the content of the song that we will sing and that will ring out through the heavens and the cosmos for all of eternity. Worthy are you to take the scrolls and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so you see Jesus when he looks on the church he sees the beauty of his father but he also sees the perfection of his love as demonstrated on the cross and in the resurrection where he purchased us with his own blood behold you are beautiful why because I have made you so. Well, finally, Jesus sees a third thing, and this list is by no means exhaustive. I mean, come on, three things could not be exhaustive, even in the least. But Jesus sees the beauty of his mission. Jesus sees the beauty of his mission. The New Testament is unmistakably clear that God has called His church to be the principal agency for heralding the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus issued this commission in Matthew chapter 28, this command would stand for the church in all subsequent generations. The disciples were the church's nucleus and upon Christ's ascension to the Father, this little band of ragtag fishermen would serve as His representatives on earth. Now, Jesus knew that the followers He had of the first century would not themselves be able to make disciples of all nations. Being witnesses to the end of the earth would take more than a millennium to accomplish. And so for that reason, Christ adds a long-range promise. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So from Pentecost forward, the book of Acts is replete with accounts of this end-of-the-earth evangelism. The Spirit-filled apostles were witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and beyond. Now, while Pentecost is certainly not the beginning of the church, it is her launching into all the earth. What had been primarily a localized church now becomes a universal church encompassing nations and beyond. The believers of the church of Acts were zealous and passionate proclaimers of the good news of the gospel. Peter's enemies told him in Acts chapter 5, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Can the same be said here in Raleigh? You have filled the church with your teaching. 
And in response to their evangelistic efforts, Paul and his fellow missionaries in Acts 17 were accused, and I love this, of turning the world upside down. You've just created a mess. People are getting saved everywhere. Churches are springing up. People are being honest in the marketplace. They're living godly lives. There's preaching on every corner. And as a result, Acts 2.47, the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. I I want to ask you folks, whatever has happened to the earnest plea to unbelievers to repent and come to Christ that so stunningly characterized the church of the book of Acts? What has happened? Have we assumed that the church shouldn't take the Lord's commission as seriously as they once did because we have somehow lived, lived and are living in some sort of technologically advanced age? After all, Dustin, the Bible has been translated into countless languages, missionaries and mission-sending agencies. You know, we give money to all those things, and the advent of mass media has broken down walls and borders that once existed between people groups and nations and barriers. Let me ask you, is the church still under the commission to be witnesses to the end of the earth? Paul's introduction to the church in Rome makes it quite apparent that this entire epistle is about the gospel. Romans chapter 1 verse 1, the good news of the gospel of God. Bracketing Romans is the apostle Paul's reminder to his readers that he was called to chapter 1 verse 1, be set apart for the gospel of God and a... Chapter 15, verse 16, minister of Jesus Christ to the priestly service of the gospel of God. The good news of the gospel is the good news of the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 8, verse 12, good news of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 10, verse 36, it's the good news of peace. Acts chapter 20, verse 24, the gospel of the grace of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 9, the gospel of His Son. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, the gospel of your salvation. 1 Timothy 1, 11, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Surrounded by bad news at every single turn, the church has been entrusted with the good news. The good news of the gospel. This is Christ's mission on the earth. The gospel is not an earthly message, but a heavenly message. The gospel is about God. His holiness, His grace, His wrath, His righteousness. The gospel doesn't originate with the church. The church did not devise the gospel. The church hasn't crafted the gospel. The gospel is a message given to the bride of Christ announcing the mediatorial triumph of Christ over sin, death, and the world. The gospel is the good news of salvation through God's Son, Jesus Christ. It's the message that Jesus will rescue sinners from God's wrath against sin through the sacrificial, substitutionary death of Jesus Christ upon the cross and His triumphant resurrection from the dead. This is not only good news, it is beautifully good news. We will never hear anything more surpassingly beautiful than the truth that Jesus is the willing liberator and savior of sinners. And so when Christ looks upon his church and he says, behold, my love, you are beautiful. What he has in mind there is the commission that he gave to his disciples and thus through his disciples to us that we are to take the message of the good news of the gospel to the very ends of the earth.
For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. No church has the freedom to tamper with, to tweak, to add to, or to subtract from the good news of Jesus Christ. We are simply called to herald it. This is the mission of God. And so when our Lord looks upon his bride, he beholds the beauty of his father, he beholds the sufficiency of his sacrificial love, and he beholds the beauty of his mission, the gospel to rescue sinners. Listen, brothers and sisters, Jesus doesn't lament the church he has rescued. He's not out shopping for somebody else. He will never divorce us. Christ welcomes the church into his beautiful presence as his beautiful joy and treasure. The church isn't just about organization and leadership and function and vision. Jesus sees more. His gaze reveals the beauty of the Father, the sufficiency of His cross, and the fulfillment of His mission in the world. He sees sinners being rescued, redeemed, and renewed. And our bridegroom is about to come and get us. And the bride is now waiting and watching for his appearance when he will bid to us welcome. And Jesus bids us to join him in gazing upon his bride and exclaiming, Behold, you are beautiful. Father, we thank you for our time together this evening in your word. We thank you that, Father, though some of these things may be complicated to our minds, as it were, and profound to our hearts, Father, we just relish in the glory and beauty of Christ who redeemed us, who rescues us, and looks upon us as his beautiful bride. Give us, Father, this perspective. Turn our eyes from the weariness of this world. Turn our eyes from the blemishes that so often spot and mar the church's beauty and turn our eyes to the Father, to Christ's love and Christ's mission. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.